Hello, welcome to the Object Share Podcast. Uh, today we're talking all about uh, the year that was in tech for uh, generally and for us as a company. Uh, looking back at 2019, um, some of the big things that happened in software and cloud-first software and uh, looking ahead to 2020 and, and seeing what uh, what impact uh, some changes coming down the road in the next year might have for um, both us as software developers and our clients who are looking to build software. So I'm joined in the studio today with uh, my buddy and co-host, Jeff Sato. Jeff, how are you? I am awesome. Yeah, it's hard to believe that we're recording a year-end podcast. Like, this year has just flown by, right? Like, like both from, you know, client engagements and, and personal. But, like, I mean, every year I get older, it seems that, you know, time is just sort of compressing, right? It's, uh, <laughs> it's been absolutely amazing. And, and, you know, the technologies that we've used, clients we've engaged with, it's been just an amazing year, right? As I celebrate my my second year working with uh, with Object Sharp and the great team. That's right. That's right. Congratulations. Thank and you. Uh, yeah, it's been it's been an awesome. It's been a pleasure to have you. And uh, I guess we're coming up right now, maybe just this weekend, on twelve months of doing the Object Sharp podcast. So yeah, I was wow. just going to say, I think it was almost to the day that we were sitting in this room <laughs> doing a podcast last year. And this is the original four. Yeah. That's right. This is yeah. actually yeah. pretty awesome that, yeah. you know, we're, we're basically, you know, sort of ending the year off this way on the 12th. Yeah, I like it. I like it. And uh, yeah, we'll revisit some of the stuff that we did, I guess, over the year. But uh, that one was on Cosmos DB, if I recall, right? Correct. Yeah, yeah nice. the very first one. Yeah. Cool. Well, it'll be interesting to see where your thoughts are on that. 12 months later, but uh, <laughs> uh, let's uh, continue the introduction. So uh, Dave, uh, we've got Dave Judd here. Dave, you want to say hello? And uh... So hello, yeah, as I said, uh, I think this is my third podcast. Did the original one with the uh, same guys in the room. Uh, looking forward to being here. Cool. And uh, Shane? We've got Shane Castle here. Uh, Shane Castle, here I am. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, yeah, happy anniversary. It's a, It's been great. It's been a busy year, like Jeff was saying. It's just been a very, very busy year. Lots going on. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it was good talking to you guys. Yeah, it's great to have you. And um, maybe just for our listeners um, who don't um, maybe know know you guys, um, maybe just give a brief introduction or background on kind of like what you do and, and what your role is um, these days. Okay. So yeah, I uh, I run the app dev practice at uh, Object Sharp and uh, help bring people's ideas to the cloud and do custom development and embedded development with them. Cool. Yeah, and I, I run the cloud practice at Object Sharp, uh, focusing on Azure, uh, a lot of onboarding, governance, automation, and our, our worlds are kind of blurring. You know, app, app dev and cloud are becoming one. So one in the same. Yeah, yeah. It's, <laughs> yeah, there is the cloud. That's it. Yeah, yeah, I'm starting to see you guys at a lot more meetings, like together. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's <laughs> kind of scary. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it is scary. Um, cool. Well, um, just uh, a slight a slight plug. Um, so the Object Sharp podcast is uh, by Object Sharp, and as you guys uh, mentioned, uh, we all we all work with Object Sharp. Um, so a brief plug for Object Sharp, we're a, a, a cloud-first uh, digital transformation company located in Toronto. Um, we do everything kind of end-to-end across the software development lifecycle from complete just ideation and trying to think about what your product might be to actually coding and developing it to large enterprise DevOps and information management and governance and security practices um, as well. So um, really what sets us apart from other organizations is our intense knowledge of um, cloud for software and uh, in particular the Azure Microsoft stack. And yeah, um, if you're looking for more information on us, you can check us out at objectsharp.com. And we're on Twitter and LinkedIn. Um, just look for Object Sharp. It's Object and Sharp. Uh, 
two words that are now one for this company. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, plug aside, let's uh, let's roll on and start talking about. Um, we're gonna do we're gonna do highlights, I think, of 2019 for the year, and yep. then look ahead to the future and, and see what what we're all thinking um, might be relevant for our customers in 2020. And given you know, let's be nostalgic. So we started yep. the first podcast around Cosmos DB, yep. right? And I personally, in my area and clients I worked with had great hope for what Cosmos DB could be, right? And, and you know, it's interesting as, as we sort of look at that. So I'd love to get your guys' perspective on it because from my view of things, for people that were, were doing digital transformations and uh, not just moving apps, but reinventing them, re-architecting them, I didn't see as much, right? But uh, I'd love to get, you know, Shane, Dave, maybe start with Dave, sort of your perspective on it for the projects and things that you worked on in your sort of view of that, because Cosmos DB, you know, was a bit of a mind shift for a lot of people, right? To understand what it could really bring. But there was also the business aspect of it is understanding what is this thing really going to cost me, right? And, and how is this going to impact the business from that standpoint? And it, is it the right technology? Right. So Dave, maybe like speak from some of your, uh, your perspectives and stuff like that on Cosmos. So I guess I'll start personally. So the, the four or five projects that I was involved in, even from a, a coding perspective, all made use of Cosmos at wow. some, yeah, in some shape or form, um, which is great because it kind of kills all of the ORM code that you have to write. So like 33% of your code is always writing the SQL statements and taking that and getting it into C Sharp. A lot of that just goes away and there's just, you know, a, a serializer that does that work for you. So it, it does shave a lot of time off of what you're doing. But back from a, a to a client perspective, I think, a lot of enterprises still like SQL. That's what it is. Their mindset's in SQL. They're thinking... They're comfortable with it. They're very comfortable with it. They're comfortable with this normalization of data, this perfect normalization of data. It, it, it's, I don't know. That, that's, and so there's a younger crowd of developers that don't have that ingrained in them, and yeah. they're used to Mongo and the document model, and I think they can jump... Yeah, they can jump over to Cosmos a little bit easier. Um, that being said, what we have been doing is more of a, a hybrid model. So we're doing a lot of fast document-based stuff where it can replicate really quick to two or three regions. And then we use something like Data Factory to take that data and pump it into SQL so that they can do all their BI and reporting. So um, yeah, I'm not sure if it caught on as much as Microsoft thought. I don't know what their goals were for Cosmos in yeah. terms of is it going to display SQL? But um, just using the tech, it's been great. And the yeah. new SDK is really good. Yeah. It's it's a lot better than the old one. So at least I'm seeing an evolution. Yeah. Um, and there's new features coming out all the time, which, yeah. you know, good and bad. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> one day you have this, the next day you don't, or the next day it works like this, right? Yes, uh, change is the only constant. Yeah. Right? So uh, pricing, I can address that one. Yeah, it's not the cheapest, um, but there's a little bit of a, I guess, a, you know, it's not as bad as people think. You can go all in now. You can set up a, a database and have multiple containers in it, and they all share the same throughput, kind of like a, an elastic pool in SQL. So before, every container had to be isolated throughput, and that yeah. got pricey. So okay. that's like $20 per container. So to the SQL world, imagine paying every time you created a new table. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it's not like that anymore. You, you can do shared pricing yeah. and shared scale, and then you're only paying for the bits as it scales above and beyond that. So um, 
one of the projects that's using it heavily right now, their their bill's still only around forty dollars a month for Cosmos, which is amazing, right? right? Because when I first looked at it, I I just assumed it would be much much more, and it would be uh, I'll call it certain circumstances, it, it's going to rocket, right? But it wasn't for every situation, right? So right. It, it's something for us to dig more into to sort of understand as we work with these clients. And maybe it's a bit of an education factor, like you said, of what they're comfortable with from an architectural standpoint and everything else. And when you're working with, you know, younger groups or startups and stuff like that, where you can have more influence over the architecture, right, is where we can introduce it. Yeah. And I think that the pricing too is more on a tolerance for how fast you want something. If you need 10,000 transactions to be written and then replicated within a second, then you need to pay for the throughput to get that done. But if you're okay waiting a few seconds, then it just, you know, it, you just stick at that rate. So it's kind of a predictable cost model in that sense. If you want it to be faster, you just bump it up based on how fast you need that thing to, to happen, right? Yeah. And um, I find that not everyone needs everything as quick as they think, right? If, as long as your reads are really quick, you can be doing a lot of processing in the background and uh, lower your cost that way. Yeah. Which, which is a common thing to look at. Like, you know, it's funny, in engagements with customers, we see this all the time, and I'll segue over to Shane in a second, is you know, they look at it saying, because I'm moving in the cloud, I want five nines, right? And you know, the conversations we have to have with them is saying, well, does the business need it, right? Like, how many nines do you have before? Well, we only had two nines. So why are you going to five nines, and do you expect not to pay for that, right? right? And, and so like, you know, we're seeing a lot of things as people move to cloud, right? And especially in the area of security, and this is where you know, I'll look to Shane, to give sort of his input and stuff like that is I've seen the conversation around security, right? And even, you know, DevOps, which has been around for a while and is, is, is you know, sometimes confusing between products like Azure DevOps and what is DevOps, but, you know, now there's DevSecOps, right? And stuff like that. And like, so what's your take like over the last year and how security has sort of changed and, and how that's even changed how we approach things? Yeah, well, you know, I think cybersecurity is the word of the year. Uh, probably going to be the word of the decade for for the 2020s. As we transform businesses to be more and more data-driven and more and more reliant on the cloud, getting things locked down, get it, getting eyes and ears, you know, operational control as to what's happening in the cloud is is the most important thing. And uh, just a comment on the comment on the Cosmos thing. Um, what I'm seeing is uh, when people understand act that they can go to an active active architecture. The, the money that sits on the table for DR, right? That, the idea of having this idle environment uh, as a backup, when you can split the load and remove downtime, uh, that, that's one of the big things of Cosmos. I think the project's going into next year. I think this year is just kind of a, what is Cosmos? And mm-hmm. next year will be, hey, we should be using this. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Okay, dive a bit deeper on the security stuff. Sure. Uh, so number one, uh, I think is, is yeah, well, between... There's everything's tied for first is <laughs> encryption and access control, um, you know, and really understanding who has access to what data. How do you get those controls in place? Monitoring that compliance and then the the ongoing monitoring of that, um, and then you know for IaaS infrastructures, making sure they're patched. Whereas on prem, maybe you could be a little more lax about that in the cloud. Absolutely important to make sure everything is where it is, and that's where things like Azure Security Center comes into place. And um, and a bit later, I'll talk about my 
Yes. Exciting 2020. Your uh, new favorite thing. Don't yes. say it yet. Save it. I won't. Uh, not yet. It's coming. <laughs> security, security, security. And, and Dave, like from a security standpoint, as you're developing, right, and yep. leading development practice, have you seen that sort of change as well? Yeah. Or when we think about the tools that used to be about, you know, release management and all this other stuff, how's that sort of affected from a, a core development standpoint? Well, I think we mentioned Shane and our teams are overlapping a lot. And I, I it, you know, no, it was totally apparent this year because we kind of just plow forward and want to use all these cool things yeah. in the cloud, right? And then Shane's team comes in and puts the guardrails up and hopefully he does it first before we go too far, right? Yeah. So <laughs> it's about, you know, knowing what you should have in place and then monitoring and managing that. But yeah, so we had two projects this year and first on the table was before we even, you know, started writing code was how are we going to do the encryption of the data in the cloud? They wanted to take advantage of blob storage they wanted to make sure that you know they could rotate keys, they could do things, mm -hmm. they could own the keys, um, and data that happened on prem would get encrypted, pre-encrypted before it even go to the cloud, where it was then re-encrypted. So, um, you know, that's a first. That's starting to happen now, yeah. right? And so people are at least um, thinking about that before they just jump in and embrace the cloud. It's nice. So yeah. we're, sh we're shifting left to use old terminology, right, on security because security was really something more after things were developed that you sort of threw over the wall and, you know, the, the SEC team would sort of look at it yeah. and, you know, give it a rubber stamp or not basically for what we're doing. So that's awesome because, you know, it is a public cloud, right? And, and exactly. you know, you've got to be aware of these things, right? We all have doors and locks on our houses, right? You need the same thing when you're running infrastructure and stuff up there. Okay. Switching streams, right? IaaS, you brought it up and all that other stuff. You know, talk to me about containers and orchestration because I, you know, you know, you talk about buzzwords of the year, right? And, and people's <laughs> interests and stuff like that. Kubernetes has to be up there, right? And, and, you know, the awesome AKS service and stuff like that. So your guys' sort of perspective, use of that, you know, what, uh, you know, I, I see sort of the, the competition a bit over in, in, in that area right now. Yeah, well, absolutely. I mean, well, so Kubernetes, the rise of Kubernetes has just been a really real thing. And, and you know, I, I look at Linux. Linux is the leading open source OS for a single machine. And Kubernetes is really the operating system for multiple machines. So when you want to run reliable services in the cloud, you need multiple machines. So the, and, um, and this is where, uh, you know, Docker, the fate of Docker, uh, you know, the decline of Docker, the company, but the rise of Docker, the format, um, Docker runs on Kubernetes. So, so containerizing applications and getting those running is, has been, uh, we've done so much work with that this year and, and, you know, continuing into 2020 and, uh, you know, I'd like to give a shout out to Guy, who we had on the show, who won yeah. the uh, Impact Award this year for us with his work on, on AKS. So Yeah, um, that's right. Um, so, yeah, sorry, Shane. Uh, but for our listeners who don't know, uh, so Object Sharp won a Microsoft Impact Award for application innovation in, in fintech. And a lot of that was uh, based on work by a, a, a consultant who works with us. His name is uh, Guy Martin. And uh, he he was on the podcast actually earlier this year um, talking about um, Kubernetes and containers. And uh, yeah, his work uh, is pretty transformative. Um, so we actually have a, a link um, kind of describing the work that he did and, and, and how that led to the award. So we'll put that in the show notes. But uh, yeah, sorry, Shane. Uh, yeah. yeah. No, and so, I mean, that just is part of like the, the, the growth in containerization. And it's not just on Kubernetes. Uh, you know, Azure App Service, there's so many places to run containers. We finally have uh, a format, like you may remember PKWare, which is the company that made PKZip, yeah. which these days is just zip. Uh, you know, in the future saying Docker, that'll just be a way to say a completely containerized app and all the libraries and operating system it needs to run. So now you have a file, 
that is the app that runs. Uh, and that's pretty cool. So Docker is becoming more like a format and less of a company. A company. Yeah, yeah, I mean, Mar- Mar- we'll see what Mirantis does with Docker Enterprise. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, the, the Docker business model was uh, the tools were free and the backends where the licensing was and Kubernetes is an open source license and that kind of pooched that model. So, Right. Yeah. But, but so for the people listening, if you don't know what Kubernetes or Docker containerization is, um, definitely start reading up on it because it is something that impacts all areas of the business, not just running the production stuff, but it has huge impacts on, on just using hardware effectively, right? Even for developers and stuff like that. I love some of the demos you gave earlier of what you were able to run when you containerize stuff, right? And creating that self-contained sort of development type environment. And it's pretty awesome. Um, well, to tie it even back to Cosmos, I mean, we run the Cosmos emulator in a container in our dev environments so that we don't have to go out to the cloud all the time. So, right. yeah, I mean, it's changed. Yeah. Uh, you can do that before. You'd have to spin up VMs and do all these things. Now you just have this little container running that runs the, yeah. the services well, you I re- need. Well, I even yeah. remember way back, right, just when we were doing, you know, VM images and stuff like that, right? And they say, oh, you could never run SQL in a VM and all that other stuff, right? So people always have this fear of, you know, my application's different, it's too big, it's too needy, right? But we see over time, right, that that doesn't really play out, right? And the containerization uh, movement and stuff like that is huge, right? And, and, and it makes huge, huge impact, especially as people, we'll transition to the next one, as people are starting to lift and shift things to the cloud, right? Because it's an easy way, you know, when I look at it, Kubernetes, Docker, and my understanding of it, to start to get some of those illities that we want from the cloud of availability and failover and all these other stuff and performance and stuff like that by leveraging these things, right? And, and the one thing that, you know, I'd love to get your input on is, you know, I expected more people to be lifting and shifting as is and still dealing with patch Tuesday and stuff like that. But I was really, really impressed this year with the projects that we dealt with for the number of people that actually wanted to jump over IaaS, right? And start to get the modernization. So I'd love to get your input on that and what you saw in some of the projects. Because, you know, I saw, especially in the data type area, people wanting to move relatively quickly to pass like services, Cosmo or other things. Uh, and love to get your sort of input on that because that surprised me a bit. I, I honestly expected people to do, you know, that slow sort of migration and stuff like that, as opposed to jumping, I'll call it to huge benefits in, in the pass world. You want to take that one first? Sure. Yeah. Well, I, I think, uh, you know, going kind of jumping back to the security talk well, once once the guardrails are in place and you're comfortable with the the perimeter you built in azure and you can control that um you just look at the value that going to kubernetes brings and there's you could lift and shift sure uh but that's just taking what you have and, and moving it and it doesn't really transform it to a cloud-based model where this idea of scaling linearly so that you're using resources so from an economic perspective you're matching your supply and demand curve you know, there's, there's no waste. If you have idle infrastructure on-prem where, you know, you may be 60% utilization on average in the cloud, you should be at 99.9% utilization on average because you can have more on demand and you give it back when you're not using it. Yeah. So, you know, uh, just like in electricity, uh, we have time over en- uh, time o- energy over time in a kilowatt hour. Um, n- now we have the concept of the gigabyte second, right? How much compute are you using over time? And that's what you'd be paying for. So it's, They've been talking about utility computing for a long time. We're finally there, yeah. uh, especially with the serverless technology. So to just lift and shift, maybe just leave leave what you have there, build out all the new stuff in the cloud, and, and bring things over as it makes sense. Um, yeah, and it, it, it has huge business ramifications. Like, you know, we deal a lot with technology here, but when we talk to our customers, right, like this is fundamentally changing how 
they do planning, how they do procurement and everything else. Because in most organizations, the whole CapEx, OpEx, and all this other stuff really drives how the business actually can modernize and do things, right? And so, you know, for organizations out there, as you're starting your cloud journey, it's not just about the technology and stuff like that. You've got to look at how your business actually budgets and allocates and deals with this, right? And also a bit of the unknown of, so if I'm doing this, what are my costs? Because people like fixed costs, right? We even see that in utilities with various players out there that saying, you know, I'll give you a guarantee this is what your monthly rate is, right? Um, but in this case, you really, the business wants to pay for performance, right? When they're doing something that's going to make more money for the company, they have no problem basically spending more, right? But spending dollars on idle cycles, right? As we're entering this Christmas break and people enjoy time with their family, just doesn't make a lot of sense going forward. Yep. I, I think uh, a lot of times too now I, I've been going to engagements and they're, they're kind of talking to that point where it's like, yeah, I don't want to just take my VMs and move them to the cloud. We're going to do that anyways. They say that, you know, yeah. we, we're going to do that with a subset, but they're, they're kind of realizing that bad code on-prem is still going to be bad code <laughs> in the cloud. Like the cloud's not going to just magically make your app perform better, right? And make so, it secure, yeah. <laughs> yeah, make it secure, make it perform. Like yeah. it's not just going to automatically take advantage of, of yeah. what's there. So we did a, a pretty interesting project with a government agency. And the first thing we did was lift and shift. Yeah. They liked it because as you guys said, you're, you know, they, they lift and shifted, but then they started doing the on-demand model and scaling up and down. But the app was still slow. It was still taking four and five hours to do processing. Yeah. Whereas when we kind of reimagined it a bit and split out chunks of it and started using file streams and instead of doing everything through databases um, and really scaling out horizontally, we got things down where we could measure the cost in like nickels. Wow. So, you know, instead of buying 250K worth of hardware and licenses, we broke it down to a series of functions, which you could measure, as Shane said, you can measure the cost of them now. And yeah, it's five to six cents to run one of these operations, right? And they, yeah. they, they're taking like four to five minutes. So maybe step one is up, oh, we have the cloud and yes, we can start taking advantage of lifting and shifting SQL and things like that. But then breaking down your app um, to start you know, taking advantage of what you can be doing in the cloud, yeah. I think that's kind of the next step. And we saw a lot of that. Yeah. Yeah. So two or three clients said, "Yeah, I don't really want to just take this. What What do you think is a a logical path forward to kind of decomposing, or maybe we do just lift and shift that, but phase two of the project, maybe we're going to build using more cloud native stuff." So yeah, yeah, yeah. it's sort of cool, yeah. right? But once again, it ties into what is the business pressure, right? Because a lot of our yeah. clients sort of started saying, "My lease in the data center is coming, coming up, up that, or yeah. I've got to go drop a whole whack of money on new hardware." Yeah, and, and that's the thing. But if they you have that timeline too short between recognizing that and having to make that decision, right? That sometimes drives whether it's a bit more of a lift and shift or do they have the time to sort of modernize and everything else because it's about modernizing the application, but I'll keep bringing it back. These organizations have to maintain that going forward. And we've spent a lot of time this year working with companies and working with senior managers on, you know, what are the skills for the people? What are the new roles, even titles and stuff in organizations, right? To help the organization move forward and the people move forward so they're successful long-term as well, right? Because we help a lot of people with a lot of the upfront and stuff like that, but this is something that, you know, they have to embody and move forward with, right? And, and that, once again, I, I was pleasantly surprised this year with the amount of foresight that a lot of our clients had, right? And thinking about the people aspects and stuff behind this, and it's not just modernizing an app and putting it up there, right? Right. And that takes time, right? Technology can move a lot quicker, 
right? But the people change process and getting them comfortable with it and changing policies takes more time. Yep. So API management. This was another one that sort of came out. Like I didn't really know much about API management before the beginning of this year. And and I got to, you know, say that I, I was pleasantly surprised with the amount of, you know, both from RFPs and, and clients that sort of spun it that way. So talk to me a bit about API management and, and why you think, you know, this is such an exciting area and, and, you know, why we saw so much in that area. Yeah. So I, I'd, you know, for me personally, I think um, between Kubernetes and API management, they're, they're, that was my... You can't have everything as your favorite, Shane. I'm telling you... <laughs> next, API management on Kubernetes. Next there year, go. we're going to see an ordered <laughs> list in a video of what it is. <laughs> yeah. I mean, between those two, that kept me busy for most of the year. Um, this, oh. uh, yeah. So um, API management... The, you know, we did the whole podcast on that. Yeah. So if you haven't uh, haven't listened to that podcast, we'll listen. Uh, to yeah, it. yeah. Uh, so so I won't go back over too much of that. But the, but the idea, I, I was I was with a client recently, and we we're sitting down, and and uh, it was one of the um, si- system managers in, in IT, and he said, you know, we know we need to do this API management thing because the marketing guys are talking about APIs. <laughs> <laughs> and, and this is uh, an insurance company, right? So, so uh, the API has come of age, yeah. um, and, and it's just the idea of digitizing the business, getting your your business drivers out there so that they're accessible over the internet. And, and this is how you know I think it's the next scale of the volume of business. Um, you know that APIs can handle virtually unlimited if you can do uh, a certain amount of work w- with people bringing those APIs and getting that out to your customers so you can just scale and scale and scale. So it'll be really interesting to see where it goes. Yeah. And, um, and yeah, course- I think the, the API management part's really important because Shane kind of nailed it is you're, you're exposing your company secrets sometime <laughs> like out to the internet where yeah. people can start consuming it. And it's, this is nothing new. We've been doing it for a long time, but yeah. it's gotten to this point where everyone wants an API for everything. And if you just put them out there and you don't put security on them and you don't have throttling control like that API manage it, uh, management does a uh, at least in Azure too does a really nice job of providing that layer right yeah. so yeah because you, you got to prioritize what the traffic is right and, yeah. and realistically from a business standpoint I look at it saying you know API management as you said is what makes you unique as a company and if you can then start monetizing that right by exposing that outside need the guardrails and the safety and the prioritization <laughs> and logging monitoring all that other great stuff right but then your business can really start to scale Right. And, 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 you know, nowadays, very few businesses are isolated that they do everything themselves. Right. It's sharing of that information. It's sharing of that process collaboratively. Right. And if you can do that in an automated fashion, that's awesome. Right? Yeah. So, my, 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 my secret hope for 2020 is that uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken will uh, call us and tell us that they want to put their special recipe, their, their seasonings uh, in, a, in a get endpoint that, uh, <laughs> that I can access and consume and then feed into my smart microwave to... Uh, <laughs> you joke, but you could actually do that yeah. if you had, uh, <laughs> you know, because you, you wouldn't have access to what the seasonings were. You'd have a yes. set of seasons, then you could pay a transactional cost yeah. and yeah. it would... Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's encoded and yeah. it's encrypted yeah. and it's... A, it's funny on the KFC thing. So I was driving by my house and there's a KFC there and all of a sudden it was all green. And yeah. I'm going, is this a Christmas thing? But I guess they picked one location in all of Ontario and it happened to be by my house in Mississauga that they were testing plant-based chicken. 
Oh. Uh, and, and so this was their right. test. So they, they repainted, reskinned. I mean, every red <laughs> was green on it. And I'm going like, what's going on? And I just saw it, it written up in the news. I didn't stop by. Nice. Um, but, it, but it was written up that way. So who knows? You know, they're, they're trying yeah. new things, right? I think, I, think I get 10, 10 additional points for that amazing diversion <laughs> you know, into, I, into chicken. I wonder, I wonder if you're going to get some coupons through the mail now. <laughs> yeah. um, they're not a sponsor. I'm just saying that. Yeah, yeah. So, so, you know. This was a pretty good recap of, of, you know, some of the cool things that we saw, some of the common things and, and you know, elements and, you know, if you want to call it threads across a lot of engagements that we had. Um, let's take a look for it, right? Because, you know, I always love doing this stuff because it, to me, it's, it's fascinating to try to predict, right? And, and we do this internally at Object Sharp all the time. We have our favorite lists and, you know, what companies might be bought and this and that. And, uh, and it's sort of hard, right? With, with the pace of change, because we only have insight into so much. Uh, of what's changing, right? Um, so you know, let's uh, let's flip basically, and, and let's put you know, let's get our crystal ball out and, and look a bit forward and get your guys' input on uh, on what you're thinking. You know, you you might see over the next year and and trends that might continue or things that might stop. Yeah, yeah, sounds good. All right, so maybe we'll just start with like your big themes or your big predictions for the for the year. Should we just go around the table or? Yeah, yeah. I want to start with the you know the really big tech people, which means all three of you and not me. So okay, go. well, yeah, maybe we'll start with uh, we'll start with you, Shane. Okay, sure. Yeah. I, I, I've got three. So, right. so on the Azure side, it's Azure Arc. Uh, you know, I, I, Azure Arc. What is, is Azure Arc? It's it's tied it, back to electricity, again, so, isn't it? <laughs> I, I think Azure Arc's worth its own podcast. So maybe in 2020, uh, I would love to be a guest well, on that podcast. Can, can you give our listeners like like a mini a mini synopsis? Here's, Elevator pitch. Yeah. So uh, out there in the world, there are there are, everyone who's dealing with multi cloud or on prem. Um, has this idea of a cloud management system. So there are some out there, but if, if you want to run, you want identity management, so you need a directory of all your users, uh, and you want to do security, and then you want to provision resources on clouds in multiple locations. That's, yep. that's basically the, the idea there. If you could have a single tool uh, with a, a nice interface, that one thing to learn, and then you could deploy to multiple tools, that's what Azure Arc is. Okay. So you get the Azure portal, that extends onto the other major cloud providers, you know, Amazon, Google, um, IBM Cloud, wherever you want to go, and then also to on-prem. So then you can use ARM templates to deploy resources across those clouds. So uh, I'm really looking forward to do my first ARM template to provision something on Amazon and That's using cool. an ARM t template to provision something on-prem. On-prem, yeah. Um, so, you know, that tool. And then Azure AD, and just a couple weeks ago, you know, Amazon announced Amazon SSO now integrates into Azure AD. So you can domain join Amazon resources into Azure. Yeah. So it's finally we have a single tool to lock down, secure, and monitor compute resources no matter where they are. So so what type of businesses are um, would be like key, like like people who should really be thinking about Azure Arc as they go into 2020? So anyone who's not pure cloud today? Yeah. Them. Them? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so okay. Yeah. <laughs> if you have an, anything on-prem, yeah. Arc will extend onto there. Yeah. Uh, if you have anything across... If you're multi-cloud? Multi-cloud, multi yeah. You want to go across. Okay. So basically, if you're not purely on one cloud, yeah. Arc is something that'll be we, very interesting. But what, you know what's pretty amazing about that is in the past, we always had to look outside of, I'll call it a primary cloud vendor, to look for things like that. Right? Yeah. Like, like you know, we, we see a lot of great use and success, you know, with companies like Terraform. Right. And, and HashiCorp, or sorry, HashiCorp, the company, Terraform, the product and stuff like that to deal with that because they're looking at it saying, I don't want to go to the vendor that has a cloud to support other clouds. Right. So, so it's pretty amazing, you know, when we think about it from even a business strategy standpoint for that. Right. But 
but I, but I guess it sort of makes sense because when we look at you know Azure Security Center and we look at Azure Active Directory and all these other components, it's always been multi-cloud helping out, right? Um, it, it's sort of when we think about that stuff, right? So it's yeah. just pulling a lot of that together, right? So it'll be interesting to see. Yeah, and it kind of makes sense for Amazon to help with this project too because yeah. if you think about it now, with a couple clicks of a button, they can deploy the same stuff to Azure onto AWS and they're going to get the compute price for that, right? So they're both making money. Yeah. Uh, Microsoft came up with the tooling and maybe the tooling's better. Maybe Amazon realized that, right? They're like, eh. Our, their, their tooling's all scripting, yeah. basically. And yeah. I think this is a more visual set of tools for it. So. I still think multi-cloud is an interesting thing. You know, we won't have a podcast on it, but you know, my conversations with clients is, you know, okay, so this is going to ease the administration, right, of managing clouds underneath. I still think it presents an interesting challenge for clients, though, from a business standpoint saying, so if I have multi-cloud, which cloud do I go to for analytics? Which should I go to for IaaS? Which should I go to for Lambda or Functions? Like, it still presents a business challenge of saying, what is it that I want to do, right? So we're seeing all these things that, I'll call it, make it a bit easier, right? I and even, I think, Shane, you taught me this past year that, you know, you could use Kubernetes, right, with past services, right? So you could use Kubernetes with Functions and Lambda and, and push Absolutely. things out. So, but it still presents that interesting challenge for the client, right, of what is it that you want to do? Well, it depends on the nature of your business, too, because in some organizations, that might be like a top-down thing driven by like whatever, like CTO, like you have a bunch of people kind of deciding the tools or whatever. But in a lot of organizations, too, like it's more organic and kind of works bottom up. So like yeah. software teams innately know what tools they want to use in various clouds to achieve the product that they're trying to build. So if you're like a software company that has a bunch of disparate teams working on disparate products, um, the nice thing is, is like, yeah, by nature, that company is going to be effectively multi-cloud. But now you've got a way kind of at a, a top level to sort of manage that stuff across both. Yeah. Um, and so neither team has to compromise and be like, all right, all right, boys, exactly. you're switching to Azure. <laughs> like, yeah. OK, team, we're all going AWS now. Like, you know, it doesn't uh, doesn't necessarily have to be that way. OK, yeah. so that's one. That was one. OK, the, the other one is uh, Blazor. So it's kind of on the app dev side, but you yeah, know, I was uh, going to go into that. Okay, one. yeah, I'll, but that's fine. I'll, yep. I'll leave that, and yep. then uh, I'll leave Blazor to Dave, and then the, the other one is .NET five. So you know yep. .NET turned twenty. Um, so to have .NET Core and .NET Framework rolling together, the reunification. Um, so I mean, on the Azure side, Arc. I mean, just just more Kubernetes, more APIM. Um, but on the app dev side, there's a lot more innovations. So we hand it to Dave for those. Yeah, so I think there was there was two big things. So .NET Core three was pretty big, and uh, um, it was that first point where a lot of people said, "Ah, finally, there's a complete enough API set that we can make the jump into .NET Core." Um, and just just for some listeners, Dave, who might yeah. not be as technical, like what what was so significant about that? So the big thing about .NET Core is that it runs. It doesn't run on Windows. It runs everywhere. Yep. Okay, so f previous versions of the .NET framework required Windows, yeah. right? So .NET Core was big for Microsoft for a few reasons. Is one, you could take your same code and now run it, you know, pretty natively on Linux. I mean, it's still running in the the runtime environment, but um, so they have app services and app service engines now that can run Linux, which is a smaller footprint, yeah. right? So it's smaller in the cloud, runs the same code with less resources, quicker, right? So that was the big thing. But the problem with .NET Core was it wasn't feature complete or API complete okay. with .NET Framework. Version 1 had very, very little. Okay. .NET Core 2 
was getting there. 2.1 was a pretty sweet spot for us. That's where we all jumped in. Um, from a web perspective, it was pretty complete. And then 3 brought in um, a whole wealth of APIs. I don't even know what the number was, right? So um, it's at this point in time where Microsoft said, okay, here's a transition path for everyone, right? And then as Shane mentioned, I think the end of this journey is going to be what they're calling .NET 5. So they're not going to call it core anymore. And that's going to be a reunification. Yeah, uh, they're just going to reunify everything under .NET 5, right? Wow. But a big one there, Shane brought up, is Blazor, and that's going to launch officially in .NET Core 3.1. So we've been playing with the preview bits. Um, good and bad. Uh, explain, still preview. Explain I'm going to explain Blazor. <laughs> All right, so here it is. <laughs> it's, it's worth its own podcast. It is. Right. This is going to be its own podcast, okay. but this is well, we .NET running <laughs> in the browser. So you can take your .NET code right? You can compile it and you yeah. can actually execute it in something called WebAssembly right inside the browser. So it's kind of similar to Silverlight, but Silverlight required plugins, yeah. mm -hmm. right? And everyone didn't want to install plugins and the security wouldn't let us install those plugins. So WebAssembly is now built directly into the browser and all the major browsers, I think, support it now. Um, even okay. Safari, things like that. So you can take your DLL, you can ship it and you can execute it inside the browser. So what that means is, well, a couple of things. Um, for us as C-sharp guys, we can actually write our code, execute unit tests, do all that, and we could ship that code to the browser and run. We don't have to run, you know, write all the JavaScript. But the second thing it's done is, at least Blazor itself, it's brought back this concept of components. Components exist in other yep. frameworks in Angular and React, but now we have a pretty nice component model back in .NET. Um, probably since web forms we haven't had a really good component model so what that means is you can break your app into smaller components and you can ship those components down to the browser and they can run there and we're seeing a whole bunch of component vendors jump on this bandwagon hmm. so you know all the third-party yeah. component makers yeah. they're really excited about this tech in fact they are not going to be porting web forms to dotnet core they say replace your web form Oh, wow. application with a Blazor application. So right. that's probably from a .NET perspective, 2020 is going to be the launch of Blazor and everything around it. So talk to me about the business aspect of that. Like why, you know, components, great, all this other stuff. Like what is this solving? Like, because I, I know that you've been working with it and specifically Blazor at one of the clients that you were working with, there was no other way to get the performance that they wanted. Like, like so what are we talking about, you know, from... The, the type of business situation in which that really plays big yep. uh, for, for organizations. Okay, so um, let's put away or put aside sort of the rendering aspects of the front end, okay. but let's say you had to do a bunch of complex calculations in your user interface. Your user interface is just displaying the information, but that information relied on a bunch of complex math or complex um, calcs that needed to be done. Um, supposedly, Blazor and... WebAssembly can execute code at 5,000 times the speed as interpreting JavaScript. Wow. That's the benchmarks that Microsoft and others are providing. Um, I haven't seen that performance yet just in my testing, but that's what it's supposed to be able to get to. It can run native like C code and C++ code as well. So we're talking about being able to, you know, even get to the video game stage where you're rendering wow. things at 30, 60 frames per second, things like that. So... That's going to, uh, and it, it stops the round tripping. So let's say yeah. you're in a network environment that's not very stable, which this 
client that we're, we're working on an app for, we have to write a, a simulator for them. And right now we're round tripping. So you drag something on the UI, we make a call out to the back end, the yep. cloud computes it and sends it back. So the round tripping um, adds up. Adds up, exactly. And I mean, the other thing too is, is that all the compute's happening in the cloud, which means you're paying for it. Now you're moving that compute down to the browser where you're not paying for it. So it could start saving costs too. So that's yeah, it. And, and well, I'd add to that too, uh, from a from business perspective on the resourcing side, basically what my view of Blazor is the HTML5 stack. So ASP.NET was going along, HTML5 happened, and all this great stuff's happening in the browser. There wasn't really a good story there, and you have the, basically the rise of Angular and React. Mm -hmm. And Angular was an attempt at doing what web forms do in the browser. Uh, and so there's this time passed, but now with, with WebAssembly being essentially a, a compute engine running inside all standard browsers, um, now we can do code. So for a C-sharp developer, uh, for, for one, from a resourcing perspective, now all C-sharp developers who may not have learned JavaScript can now be front-end web developers. I think there's still a very much a case for designers. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was just going to say. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the so, visual aspect. Yeah. Just because they can doesn't mean. <laughs> yeah. C CSS, user experience design yeah. is, is paramount. Yeah. And, um, and But that skill set does not imply JavaScript developer. Yeah. Right? It's There's HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. It's that last little JavaScript that we can put a giant X through and put C Sharp there. Um, so we can do things like on the back end, write a class, and have an event handler. So you say when a new transaction happens, when a new sale happens, say new sale event, and now on the client in the same code, you can attach to that event and say change the screen when a sale happened without having to do a bunch of plumbing. Yeah. Um, so from a business perspective, if you have a team of C-sharp developers, your productivity building web apps just goes through the roof. Nice. So there's cost savings, shorter time to market, easier to debug, uh, real tooling, you know, JavaScript as a language did really well, but it's been pushed past its, you know, TypeScript's an attempt to help it along. In, yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, there's all these various attempts to try and patch all the misery that, that, that's in <laughs> JavaScript when we had C Sharp the whole time. So <laughs> uh, it's back. Cool. Actually, we should yeah. do a whole podcast. C Sharp on it. Yeah, I'm, I'm back. Just we should. We should. I think yeah. I got a lot of reading to do over the holidays. Yeah. We should, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because I mean, like. Especially because you have that JavaScript background. Well, and, and that, that whole world has evolved over the last however many years, right? right. So, like, the React community, um, you know, has obviously gone a long way. And there's, like, a ton of, like, tools and tooling and everything around there now that, like, people are pretty wedded to. So, this, this like, the introduction of WASM and stuff really presents kind of, like, a paradigm shift. Um, it's a which, spike. It's going to create a which yeah. rift. It, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you're still sort of, like, we're still sort of on those... Um, you know, early days, right? It's like, is it going to be Betamax? Is it going to yeah. be? Right? Yeah. It's like, yeah. there's, a, there's a lot of like, um, there's a lot more than just like, like the merits of the technology itself need to get borne out in like sort of the institutionalization of it and, and how developers respond to but it. And, and understanding yeah. what is the right <clears throat> business situation for, right? Yeah. Like, once again, I, I've just been in this industry for so long and, you know, I, I always look, used to look at my technical managers and see what book was on their desk yep. to know what technology we'd have to learn to implement. And, and implementing technology for the sake of technology, right? Yep. I, I think, you know, it has to stop to a degree and we got to look at it saying, what is the business problem or opportunity that, yeah. that we're trying to do, right? Because in the end, it is what pays for it, unless you're in a research lab, right? right. And, and, you know, we can be on the forefront of that, but we need to look at it to help understand 
you know, your application has reached the boundary of what you're doing with this. And now it's time to look at modernizing that. Right. But yeah. they're saying there's tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of web form applications out there right now. They don't have a good upgrade path into being broken apart as monoliths to yep. move to the cloud. It's not coming to .NET Core. Right. So that's the business. Yep. So I have this 25-year-old web form application. I now need to think about re-architecting that to the cloud, which we get all the time. This yep. is like reality. Um, I think this might be a good path for them to, because there's one-to-one, -one, like they're used to dragging out a button onto a form and being able to do something with it. Yeah. It's that paradigm that they're going to have. It's, so It's not just the, the, yeah. the web form app, it's the web form team, you know, and if they haven't made the jump to JavaScript, that's they right. They don't have to. Yeah. Right. So, so, yeah, so yeah. this might not be for the JavaScript team. This exactly. might be for the, the yeah, older. It's a bigger impact for the older. That's yeah. right. The yeah. older yeah. team. Yeah. There's yeah. definitely good use cases that way. And even for JavaScript teams, like we've seen. So the use case Dave mentioned on our current project is um, definitely important. Um, and like, you know, other examples that we looked at when we were actually thinking about that project, like you'd take a app like Figma. So Figma is like, you know, UX. It's like. Um, it's a small company that's kind of building it out, um, okay. and Adobe XD is sort of the <laughs> the big the big sort of like monopoly version <laughs> of that. Um, they're they're kind of like those are the competitors, and Figma is actually just like a pretty tiny team. Um, but you know, Figma allows you to do in browser what you do on Adobe XD, um, all just wow. in your browser. Uh, multiple people collaborating, building, designing UIs all at the same time, um, and the browser, frankly can't really handle all of that compute and, and rendering. So they're using, I think, a combination of WASM and um, uh, their own rendering engine to kind of get that done. Yeah. So you're seeing already, like, like, even just, like, traditional apps, right? Like, if you want to put it in a way on the web that makes it your app, like, have all the benefits of the web, which is collaboration and, and all of those things, then you're kind of, you know, you've, you're still... As good as React is, you're still kind of limited in some yep. sense as to what you can feasibly do on a screen at a given point in time. So we're reimagining what we yeah. can do, which right. is cool. Right? And maybe yeah. that's what the, the story for WebAssembly will be in 2020, is that maybe there will be this new emerging kind of rendering framework yep. where you need more than what can be offered by the DOM. Yep. And yep. that could, I mean, that would be groundbreaking too. Like, uh, yep. wow. More you know, wild right. predictions. I think we can go past the DOM because we have GPU enabled. You can just draw a canvas. Well, that's and then that's what I'm getting that's, at. That's, yeah, what, that's exactly. what's happening. Then yep. uh, all your component friends from WebGL just can come all the way forward. So we we can draw out an entire new UI framework. Uh, you know, this 3D based. It, yeah, it's very exciting. It's 2020 is going to be amazing. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, cool. All right. That's awesome. I, I, I think we've got two new podcasts and I've got a lot of reading to do over the holidays to understand this stuff better. <laughs> Never stops. Yeah. <laughs> I <Yeah>. know. <laughs> totally. It's true. <laughs> totally. All right. This was uh, awesome, guys. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. I love this, this new end of year. It's been a fantastic year, though, with the podcast. Like I, you know, I thoroughly enjoy learning from you guys and, and all the opportunities and stuff like that. And it's, uh, I look forward to carrying this forward next year and uh, bringing on some more guests as well. Yeah, so, for sure. And for th thank you for always uh, 
running a, a good ship and making uh, making this stuff happen. Yeah, it's my pleasure. All right, thanks, guys. All right, happy holidays. Yep, happy holidays. Um, yeah. For our listeners, again, uh, if you're looking for more information about Object Sharp, you can find us online at objectsharp.com. Uh, we're on Twitter at Object Sharp and LinkedIn. Uh, same thing. And uh, yeah, we'll be back in the new year with some new episodes, um, probably some stuff on what you heard today. Yeah, and a whole lot more. So we'll talk to you then. Awesome. Thanks. Okay, bye.